The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Our sermon this morning is titled, Dead to the Law, Married to Christ, Part 2, Dead to the Law, Married to Christ, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. As we've begun now chapter 7 together, we have started to consider a portion of Paul's letter that deals primarily with the relationship between a Christian and the law of God. Paul's going to make that point now in our text that the Christian is dead to the law through the sacrificial and substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his death of the law, our death of the law in him, is for the purpose that we might be joined to Christ, married to another. So we want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about the law, right? We want to talk about the Christian's relationship to the law of God. It's important to remember as we arrive at this text together, as we arrive at this subject together, that in the context of chapter 6, Paul has been dealing largely with abuses of the law. In dealing with abuses of the law, Paul is dealing with abuses of grace and faulty notions or faulty understandings of sin, but it comes back now down to verse, or chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and our relationship to the law, how we think about the law, how the Christian relates to the law, and what Paul is largely battling in his um, treatise against abuses of the law here is antinomianism or lawlessness. Those who would abrogate the law, those that would set the law aside or do away with the law, those that would consider the law to be uh, non-essential to the Christian life, right? Now that we've been justified by faith, now that we've been united to Christ through faith, we shall not, we must not continue living in an ongoing pattern of sin in the Christian life. That's Paul's premise that was introduced in chapter 6. May it never be, God forbid. We cannot continue to live in a pattern of sin. We can't turn the grace of God into licentiousness, okay? So whatever Paul intends to communicate through his use of those words, we are dead to the law, Whatever he intends to communicate, he does not intend to abrogate or to repeal the authority of the law to command. Want us to understand that and make that really clear. Whatever Paul means by the fact that a Christian is dead to the law, what Paul does not intend to communicate, in fact, he communicates the opposite in our context here, what Paul does not intend to communicate, he does not intend to communicate an abrogation of the law or a repeal of the authority of the law to command. But rather, Paul intends to prove for the Christian that the law no longer has the authority to condemn. That's an important distinction the law of God is based in the very character of God. It's a transcript, if you will, of his very being that is not abrogated. As long as there is the creator, and as long as we relate to him as creatures created by the creator, we relate to him in terms of his law. We relate to him in terms of his character, his nature, and we are to conform ourselves to his being, conform ourselves to his nature. Uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, our confession, states it this way. The moral law 
does forever bind all justified persons as well as others to the obedience thereof. The moral law binds all of us to obey it. Okay? And that obedience, not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. See what he's saying, right? Not just because of the, the matter contained in the law and that being holy, just, and good, but because of the one who gave it to us, right? It reflects our Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve the law but much strengthen this obligation. The moral law of God binds all. The law of God must be obeyed because it's a transcript of God's own character. It stands forever because he stands forever, right? He is eternal and he is the standard of the law. Unbelievers are going to be held to that standard. Unbelievers are going to be condemned according to that standard. Believers, brothers, sisters, we are held to comply with that standard. Free from condemnation, the law no longer has jurisdiction, no longer has authority by which the law may condemn us, but we are bound to give glory to God by obeying his moral standard. In our confession, Christ, through the gospel, far from dissolving the law, far from repealing our obligation to obey the law, rather, Christ, through the gospel, strengthens that obligation. Now, if you think with me, how is it that it does that, right? How is it that, the, that our obligation to obey the law is strengthened now through the gospel rather than repealed, rather than abrogated? Christ, think with me, Christ, through the gospel, gives life to our mortal body. His perfect righteousness is imputed, credited to us as our perfect righteousness. And through that perfect righteousness, we are enabled, if you will, to live righteously according to his law. Through the gospel, Christ gives life to our mortal bodies. That life that Christ gives through the gospel enables us by his spirit, who now indwells us, enables us to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So Paul says, essentially making the case, because we are enabled to obey the law, because Christ gives life to our mortal bodies, that increases our obligation. Do you see? You might say, in sin, you would hear people say on a regular basis, we have an excuse. I'm fallen. I'm weak. I can't obey it. I have an inability to obey the law. Well, now Christ has separated us from being enslaved to sin. Sin will no longer have dominion over us. Christ has, uh, the Lord has indwelt us with his spirit and enables us to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. It's a greater obligation then, empowered by his spirit for us to obey it. Look at Romans chapter eight, verse one there. Just look at the next page over. Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the point that we're getting to. We're free from the law's condemning power or from the law's condemning authority. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the point. For the law, the principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin, from the law of death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak or impotent through the flesh, 
God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that, verse 4, with this end in mind, or with this purpose in mind, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be set aside for us who are, no, (laughs) might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Therefore, brethren, we're debtors. We are debtors. Not to live lawlessly, not to live according to the flesh, but debtors to obey the law. In Romans chapter one, Paul introduces himself as an apostle who has given his apostleship for the obedience of faith among all nations for his name. That's the purpose of Paul's ministry, to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience that flows from faith, the fruitful obedience that flows from faith faith among all nations for his name. Lord, we are debtors to the law, so to speak, debtors to obey the law in the power of the spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. Now, far, far from the gospel doing away with that obligation, the gospel actually strengthens our obligation to obey the law. We now have the power to obey it. Doesn't the Lord Jesus Christ also say the same thing? He did not come to abolish the law, but came to fulfill it. Fulfill does not mean set it aside. Fulfill means to fulfill it. He did not come to abolish the law, to set the law aside. He came to fulfill the law. The law remains authoritative. And it remains authoritative in distinguishing between right and wrong. The law remains authoritative for us, for believers, in distinguishing that which is righteous from that which is unrighteous. The law remains authoritative in commanding what is righteous opposed to what is unrighteous. But do the saving work of Jesus Christ at the cross. The law no longer has authority over the Christian to demand retribution. The law can't exact from you its penalty. We're not under the law's penalty any longer. We're not under the law's jurisdiction to demand retribution. That penalty has been paid in full. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So I hope you can see from that our relationship to the law. We're going to unpack that some now as we work through Romans chapter 7 together. I would further submit to you, on the basis of all that we've learned so far through chapter 5, through chapter 6, through chapter 7, brother, sister, that your battle with sin, your victory in the Christian life, your progress in sanctification, obviously, all of that work done by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, but that work highly dependent upon your faith in Christ for these glorious truths, right? The truths that we're talking about in this text, it's dependent upon embracing these truths in faith. If you're not embracing these truths, Romans chapter five, our union with Christ, Romans chapter six, we are dead, buried with him in baptism, dead to the law, dead to sin through him. Romans chapter seven, right? These weapons of our warfare. If you're not embracing these truths in faith, your Christian growth is going to be stunted. Your victory over sin is going to wax and wane. We must believe Christ for these truths and then live like we believe them. Taking him at his word, obeying him and following him in faith. We're to press on, laying hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of us. 
So Paul begins then Romans chapter 7 by making a a statement of a principle. He's going to explain this point. He's going to do so by stating a principle in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. In other words, the law is operative. The law is authoritative only so long as the person who is governed by that law is alive. The jurisdiction of the law applies only while a person is living. The demands of the law for retribution, the demands of the law for the fulfillment of its sanction, its penal sanction, for the fulfillment of its punishments, that demand can no longer be enforced against you when you're dead. Makes sense, right? Pretty clear. Paul's intention is to invoke this principle now in support of the Christian life. The one who has been united to Christ by faith has died to the condemning power of the law. That simply, brothers and sisters, is not a a mere academic point to be made. It's not just an interesting tidbit that we can stash away in the gray matter between our ears. Um, That is a fact that will help you live the Christian life, that will help you fight and battle against sin. That is a fact that will put jet fuel into your sanctification, okay? He died, he has died to sin once for all. We died to the condemning power of the law by virtue of his work at the cross. The law can no longer say to you, you're condemned. You need to fight in that kind of victory. You need to fight in that kind of faith, you see? Now, next, Paul then provides us with an illustration of this principle in verse two. He's going to illustrate it for us, verse two. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the laws of marriage to her husband as long as her husband lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. Illustration, okay? A married woman is bound by the obligation of the law to her husband. She must obey the law. She must honor that obligation as long as her husband is alive. However, what happens when he dies? Death ends the marriage. Death ends or terminates the law's jurisdiction to condemn her as an adulteress if she marries another. That condemnation, that authority of the law is ended. Upon the death of one spouse, the other is now free from their obligation to that law and they are free specifically to marry another. Verse three, so then, If while her husband lives, if he lives and she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. If while her husband lives, while her husband is living, she is bound to the condemning power, bound to the condemning authority of the law. She's under the law's jurisdiction to condemn. Do you see? So the law, what does the law do? The law condemns her as an adulteress. She's under the jurisdiction of the law. She's under the authority of the law to condemn. And what does the law do if she marries another man while bound to her husband? The law does what the law does. It condemns her as an adulteress. But if her husband dies, verse three, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. The law, in that case, if her husband dies, no longer has any jurisdiction over her action in marrying another. You see? She acts in marrying another. The law has no jurisdiction over that action. Why? Because her husband has died. She's no longer bound. She's no longer under the jurisdiction of that law. She is free 
to act in that way without the law's condemnation. Do you see? She might have once been condemned as an adulteress for marrying another man, but now she's been freed from that law's jurisdiction by the death of her husband. She is now free to marry another. Very important, okay? Now, the application of that principle in verse four is then clear. The application, verse four, my brethren, you also, you also have become dead to the law through the body or the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've become dead to the law through the body of Christ with a purpose or with a name so that you may be married to another, released from your bondage to the law in one sense and married or enslaved as it were to a new master, married to another in Jesus Christ to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, there's the issue. There's the end. We are married to another, set free, dead to the law, dead to sin. Sin will not have dominion over you. Christ did that work of the cross to free us, free us from bondage to the condemning authority of the law so that in union with Jesus Christ, married to Jesus Christ as it were, right? In union with him, we may produce fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. That's the point, to bear fruit to God. In our marriage to sin, so to speak, what fruit did that bear? Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, death. Death, that's what that, those things of which now you are ashamed. That's the fruit that that bore. Having been free, free from the condemning power of the law, free from enslavement to sin, now married to Jesus Christ in union, in vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ, what fruit does that bear? What is the fruit of that union? What uh, offspring does it produce, so to speak? Holiness, righteousness, right? Fruit to God. If you've turned from sin to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you're not counting on your own works, you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then you, brother, you, sister, have died to the condemning power of the law. Having died to sin in union with him, you've died to the law's condemnation. The law no longer has any jurisdiction over you to condemn you. If you are in Jesus Christ by faith, the law cannot condemn you. The law has no jurisdiction to condemn you. Christ has freed you from any debt of any debt of punishment, any debt of penalty has freed you from your debt under the law. All those that the handwriting of requirements that was against you, contrary to you, has been nailed to the cross. The law has no condemning jurisdiction over a dead man. You are free then, free to marry, to be married to in union with another, namely him who is raised from the dead. And that with the purpose that we should bear fruit to God. Now it's here, among other places in the Bible, that Paul intends to illustrate our union with the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of marriage. We see that all over the Bible. When we do a wedding here, you'll hear that biblical theology come out in the wedding of how our marriage to our earthly spouse is a picture of that marriage union between Christ and his bride, the church. All marriage, physical human marriage, points to that glorious union with Christ in eternity. We are united to him, free from our debt to the law's penal sanction, we are free to marry, to be united to another in a covenantal bond now that will last into eternity. Unlike human marriage, 
especially in our day, that comes and goes, right? Frivolous, no-fault divorce is an, absurd, an obscene offense to God. Because of those things in our society, divorce is absolutely rampant. God, who hates divorce, is showing us that our union with the Lord Jesus Christ will never be broken. It is a bond that will last into eternity, a bond that will never be severed by death. Never be severed by death. We are raised to life in him. It's a bond that will last forever. Once married to, once enslaved to, very cruel, a very harsh master, sin exercising its power, and sin exercising its power, remember, chapter six, through the condemning authority of the law. In other words, sin has a power over you or sin has an authority over you through the law. Why? Because the law condemns sin and you're a sinner. So sin exercises its dominion through the condemning power of the law. The fruit of that union being further sin and death. Now set free from that bondage. Praise God. Right? Set free from that bondage, free from the sting of death. We're married to the great bridegroom of the church. Married to the great bridegroom of the church, we produce fruit to holiness and the end of that, everlasting life. Now, having stated the principle, having illustrated the principle and applied the principle, Paul now continues, verse five, with his explanation of the principle. Verse five. For when we were in the flesh, remember your former life, brother, sister, remember When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. That's what you have going against you, you could say, verse five. But now, verse six, having been united to Jesus Christ, having put your faith and trust in him, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now we're gonna unpack everything that Paul is saying here. Once again, in understanding the the blessedness of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul calls us now to consider a contrast. Consider a contrast. Your new life in the Lord Jesus Christ, free from the law, your old life under the dominion of sin, enslaved to sin and death want you to draw a contrast between the two. Remember your old life now. Paul begins the contrast in verse five with a review of the old man, your life, if you will, before Christ. He describes that old life, verse five, as a life in the flesh, in the flesh. Outside of that new life afforded the believer in union with Jesus Christ by faith, we are raised to walk in newness of life, right? The unbelieving sinner's spiritual condition is described here by Paul as in the flesh. The unbelieving sinner's spiritual condition described as in the flesh. Now, Paul has already used this expression in Romans chapter one, for example, Romans chapter two, to refer to that which is outward in his physical body, the word flesh. What does Paul mean by his use of the word flesh? What does he mean by that phrase in the flesh? In chapter two, Paul's referring to the physical body as opposed to that which is inward or in the heart. In Romans chapter two, he references circumcision and circumcision there as either being in the flesh or in his physical body or circumcision, which is of the heart. 
And there, using the word flesh, Paul is simply referring to flesh as our physical body. And oftentimes you see it in scripture, flesh referring to our physical body. You have to look at the context to determine what is meant. And though we often present the members of our body, our flesh, as instruments or means of unrighteousness to sin, though we often use the members of our physical bodies to sin, there's nothing inherently evil or inherently sinful about our physical bodies, okay? Our physical flesh, it's decaying day by day. We can, we can observe it. I observe it in many of you, <laughs> as you observe it in me. <laughs> um, I can't take it to heaven when I die. You're not gonna take this physical body with you when you die. The older we become, the more spherical it becomes, right? We can, we can see, but there's nothing inherently evil about our bodies. That was the old heresy of Gnosticism early in the body. Material was somehow bad. There's nothing inherently sinful about our flesh. But there's another way in which Paul uses the word. And we need to understand how Paul uses the word here. He transforms, it's interesting, fascinating. Paul transforms the use of the term flesh to mean something that isn't merely physical. He loads that term flesh with spiritual significance and that spiritual significance is always decidedly negative, right? Always negative. A good place to witness this transformation of the term or this transformative use of the word is in Philippians chapter three. Turn to Philippians 3 with me. Philippians 3. Again, here related to Romans chapter 2, Philippians chapter 3, Paul is dealing with the subject of circumcision. Dealing with the subject of circumcision. And Paul is going to transform our understanding of this use of the word flesh. Look at verse 2. He tells those in Philippi, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. All three of those are articular. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. All three of those descriptions describing the same group of people. In context, they're all describing the same group of people. Dogs, often in scripture, a reference to false teachers, evil workers, although these said that their works were good and necessary for salvation, because they are ascribing works to salvation, Paul calls them evil workers. And lastly, the mutilation. And that refers to what they did with their bodies, the flesh. That refers to their flesh. Paul here is referring to the Judaizers. The Judaizers who insist that circumcision, and not only circumcision, but works of the law, were necessary to salvation. And they cut their physical flesh. That's essentially what the word mutilate there in verse two means. They cut their physical flesh in physical circumcision. So Paul then contrasts their physical act of circumcision, which he refers to as the mutilation, with the spiritual condition of those who have been born again. Look at verse three. For we now in contrast, we are the circumcision. Like Romans chapter two, we're not those circumcised of flesh necessarily, but those circumcised of heart. You see the contrast, the distinction between the two. We are, Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in, here's our term, the flesh. 
No confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul is saying, what Paul is saying here is that cutting your physical flesh in circumcision, in physical circumcision, is not true circumcision. Romans chapter two, cutting your flesh in physical circumcision is not true circumcision. Those who have a circumcised heart are of the true circumcision, are the true circumcision. True, what is true circumcision? What does circumcision of the heart then result in? It results in worshiping God in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's verse three. It results in rejoicing, or the word means glorying in Christ Jesus. Now think with me, apart from true circumcision of the heart, what is Paul saying? Apart from true circumcision of the heart, apart from worship in the power of the spirit, apart from worship with the, the, the spirit wrought fruits of joy and humility, religious outward, religious acts like circumcision are nothing more than physical mutilation. That's what Paul's saying. That outward religious act of circumcision, apart from worshiping God in the spirit, glorying in Christ Jesus is nothing more than mutilation. Physical, all they're doing is mutilating their body. They become works of the flesh. That's Paul's intention now, the use of the term. Works of the flesh now refer to those outward external works, religious works, that are not found to be done in the power of his spirit, glorying in Christ Jesus. Nothing more than physical mutilation. And we can have no confidence in them. We can have no confidence in those works of the flesh. It's referring to the nature of their conduct and it's decidedly negative. Do you see? The nature of that conduct, mutilating their flesh, is decidedly negative. Those are works of the flesh. Verse four, though Paul says, I also might have confidence in the flesh, like they're putting confidence in their flesh. I might also have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So what is Paul referring to here by his use of the word flesh? Verse five. Here's what Paul means by his use of the word in the flesh, the phrase in the flesh. Verse five. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. What is Paul referring to? Paul's referring to his, his physical resume, his ancestry, right? His physical qualifications, so to speak. His tribe, his stock, his education. He referring to a physical resume. But now look at verse six. Concerning zeal, well, it's not physical, is it? Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, Paul considered himself blameless, those characteristics are not physical, and yet Paul refers to them as works of the flesh. Works of the flesh. The grounds, these works of the flesh are the grounds on which Paul would say he has confidence in the flesh before he was converted. Paul used to boast in these things. He would glory in these things. His use of the word flesh, including physical characteristics, including his education, his attainments, his character, his obedience, his attitude... Now, Paul uses the word flesh to refer to virtues and values, thoughts and actions, as much as he's referring to physical acts. Do you see? Therefore, these works of the flesh, as opposed to works of the Spirit, are negative. They're not done in the Spirit. They don't glory or rejoice in Jesus Christ. Paul says we can have no confidence in them 
They are negative. In fact, verse seven, now verse seven, what things were gained to me, these works of the flesh, I would have thought them to be gained to me. These I have counted loss for Jesus Christ. Yet indeed, verse eight, I also count all things loss for the excellence, they're worthless. They're worthless, those works of the flesh. I count them lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage that I may gain Christ. Everything done in the flesh, Paul says, is worthless to him. I count it all lost. I count it all rubbish, garbage, counts it as dung. If it isn't found to be accomplished in the spirit, if it isn't found to be glorying in the Lord Jesus Christ, boasting in him for who he is and all that he's done, then it simply isn't worth anything to the Apostle Paul. Paul counts it as loss. It is works of the flesh, and we can have no confidence in those things. Now, back to Romans chapter 7. Think with me. Paul, Romans chapter 7, refers to a time where we, verse 5, were in the flesh in the flesh. When everything that we did, we conducted ourselves in that way. A time when we could not walk according to the Spirit because we didn't have the Spirit. A time where we did not glory in the Lord Jesus Christ because we frankly despised the Lord Jesus Christ, would not want to be ruled by him. We didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to a time in the flesh. He's referring to a time when we were dominated by the rule and the reign of the flesh. And notice, he's not referring to the reign of something physical. He's referring to the rule and reign of the old man. Actions, attitude, thoughts, heart, imagination, desires, affections, the rule and reign of sin. We were under the dominion of sin. Paul is describing our condition now before justification, before forgiveness, before reconciliation. In fact, He describes us this way in verse five. The sinful passions were aroused, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. That's what it looks like to be in the flesh, enslaved to your sinful passions, under the dominion of sinful passions. By sinful passions, Paul is referring to those passions which lead to sin. Pretty straightforward. By sinful passions, Paul is referring to those passions which express themselves, express themselves in sin. The word for passion, it's interesting. The word for passion is a word that is most often translated suffering, refers to suffering. And the word began to be used for a craving of your heart and mind to such a degree that the heart or the flesh, the mind, suffers until it fulfills that craving. Sinful passions, suffering. Our flesh, to live in the flesh or to live according to the flesh is to live according to these sinful passions where our flesh, our heart and our mind craves this thing suffers the desire of this thing until we have it. 
suffers the desire of this thing until we satisfy or fulfill this carnal and fleshly lust for it. We've got to have it and we continue to suffer until we get it. Make sense? Paul says that when we were in the flesh under the rule and reign of sin, these cravings, these sinful passions were at work in our members. Now, what does that look like? Turn with me to James chapter one. James one. What does that look like? In the flesh, sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. James chapter one, look there at verse 12. James says in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He must endure temptation. Do you see? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. In other words, no, you were not made that way or born that way or created that way. And being born with ungodly desires does not make those ungodly desires any less or more excusable. It makes them less excusable. It's not better, it's worse. It does not render you less accountable to God. It renders you more accountable to God. So where does our temptation to sin come from? Temptation comes in, but that temptation to sin, where does it come from? It comes from our own sinful desires. What did Paul call them? Sinful passions. He called them sinful passions. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, dragged away is what the word means. We're not enslaved to our circumstances. We're not enslaved to hereditary traits we picked up from our parents. We're not enslaved to our libido. It's not your red hair. It's not because you have a third cousin who is Irish. It's not the, your environment that causes you to do what you do. It's not poverty or pain or a lack of education. It's not the people you hang out with. We're not animals. We're not responding with animal impulses. You're not a victim of your desire. You are responsible. You're responsible. Adam in the garden. It's that woman you gave me. <laughs> that woman you gave me. Who's he blaming? He's blaming God. (laughs) Moses, why did you make that golden calf? Aaron, you don't know how sinful these people are. I could hardly restrain them. (laughs) So I said, give me your gold. I just threw it in the fire and out popped this calf. (laughs) No, Each one is tempted when he is dragged away by his own desires and enticed. The tempted man is distracted from what is right. The tempted man is distracted from what is righteous by his own desire. He takes his eyes off the path. He's distracted from what is righteous by his own desire. He then gives in to his desires and he's dragged away. He gives in to his desires, usually first in his imagination. 
He gives in to his desire in his imagination and he's dragged away after that thing, imagining what it must like, look like to in, enjoy that passing pleasure of sin for a time. Enticed by the temporary pleasure that he's gonna get from that thing, he's dragged away, verse 15. Then when that desire has conceived, when desire has fixed its attention on the object of its craving, when that desire has fixed its attention on the, the object of its passion, when desire has plotted its evil course, when desire has silenced an accusing conscience, it, desire, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Paul says that when we were in the flesh, in other words, referring to when we were ruled and dominated by sin, it is these sinful passions, these sinful cravings, these sinful desires that were at work in our members bearing fruit to death. They're at work in our flesh, so to speak, the faculties of our soul bearing fruit to death. Back in Romans chapter seven. Paul says, Romans chapter seven, remember, remember when you were in the flesh. Do you remember when you were dominated by sin? Do you remember when those sinful passions, those desires, those sinful cravings were at work in you? Of course you remember because those sinful passions and cravings are still at work in you. Although having been set free from them by the Lord Jesus Christ, those sinful desires, those sinful cravings continue to strive to exert their sinful influence, their sinful domination over you. And they will if you let them. They were, when you were in the flesh, dominated by sin, they were bearing their evil fruit, bearing their bitter fruit, leading you to death. Continue in this condition of active rebellion against God. And that's what it is. It's not passive. You're not a victim. It's not passive. Continue in that active rebellion against God, rebellion against his law, and God will give you over to sinful passions. He'll give you the wicked desires of your own heart. Romans chapter one, verse 24. God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. He gave them up to those sinful cravings that were at work in their heart, so to speak, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Romans chapter one, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Again, one of the few places in the New Testament where that word is used the same way as we see it in Romans chapter seven. Finally, God gives them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, knowing that those who practice such things are even approve of such things are deserving of death. That's why John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now notice, notice something interesting that Paul then says about the nature of those sinful passions. Paul says, Romans chapter seven, they were aroused by the law. And here we bring it back now full circle to our relationship to the law of God. They were aroused by the law. When we were living in the flesh, remember that past life, Paul calls us to remember. When we were living in the flesh, when we were dominated by sin, sinful passions at work in our members, 
Paul says, God's law actually stirred up those passions for sin. Amazing, isn't it? That point. Paul's going to talk about this again later in Romans chapter 7. God's law actually stirred up those passions for sin. Paul says the same thing, verse 8. Sin, verse 8, taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. Well, how does that work? (laughs) What does Paul mean by that? We know this almost instinctively to be true. We see it in ourselves, don't we? Don't we? We see it in our children, certainly. (laughs) What's the sure way you can get a child to do something? Tell them not to do it. (laughs) Uh, We know this to be instinctively true, though, about ourselves as well. Think with me now. God's law determines moral boundaries. God's law, in its commanding authority, has the authority, has the jurisdiction to distinguish between what is righteous and what is unrighteous. God's law determines moral boundaries. We, in the flesh, quote unquote, we, in the flesh, rebel against that. We rebel against those moral boundaries. We're back to fallen man's depraved lust for autonomy. We're back to fallen man's depraved lust to rule himself. I will not have this man to rule over me. I'm going to rule myself. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Man's fallen condition is such that when he is faced with the law, man says no. Sinful passions faced with the law, sinful passions are aroused by the law. It stirs up those sinful cravings, that sinful lust for self-autonomy. It stirs up sinful passions to assert an assumed autonomy. What are our passions stirred up to do? Assert our autonomy. Assert our autonomy. The law says yes, so I say no. I will rule myself. The law says do that, I say, I will not. I will rule myself. It's amazing how clever we can get with justifying ways of saying no or ways of saying I'll rule myself. Most of the time, that word no is not gonna come out of your mouth. You know it's the law of God. You can't say no. There are all kinds of reasons you will give for disobedience. You've got one thing to do And it is critically important that you get that thing done now. So what do you do with it? You put it on the bottom of a stack and you do 50 other things first before you get, right? I will have what I want. That's what the flesh says. And the more that it is denied to me, the more my passion to have it is aroused. The longer it is denied to me, the more I will be willing to sin to get it. The more the law tells me it's wrong or the more a loving brother or a loving sister comes along and preaches the law to you to tell you that it's wrong. The more that that happens, the more your sinful passions are stirred up by the law to resist that. It's why you see such previously unfathomable reactions to church discipline with someone or when you approach someone with the law of God because you care about their soul. 
and they revolt against that. Why? Because the law has stirred up in them sinful passions that are going to assert their autonomy. We see that reality played out in our kids. Tell me I can't have that cookie. <laughs> right? We've also seen it far too many times, brothers and sisters, in young women who want to be married. And what God has intended as something good becomes a, an inordinate desire, a lustful craving that then the young woman will justify herself in all manner of sin to have the thing that she wants and will silence an accusing conscience, will shove off wise counsel to the contrary. Those that she loves, she'll abandon. We've seen it in men who lust after a job. Lust after a job, lust after an income, lust after some kind of prominence at work. That becomes a, not evil in and of itself, a job, right? Not evil in and of itself, but becomes a sinful passion that that man will then be willing to compromise, be willing to sin to get. And any amount of reason is just the law stirring up sinful passions in him to assert his autonomy. Give you every kind of excuse he could think of. In a church like this, it's really difficult because people are going to come to you. People are going to preach the word of God to you. And so oftentimes, I, I can't think of how many times I've heard it. I don't want to ask for counsel because I know what someone's going to say. I had someone actually tell me one time that they did not come to me because they did not want me to change their mind. Right? Sinful passions. Sinful passions. Christian, remember your past life. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Is that true? Yep. Now here is Paul's point. Consider the contrast then. Consider the contrast, verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law. We now rejoice in the law, right? We love the law. The law is holy, just, and good. When I'm in my right mind, having been set free from the condemning power of the law, now in my right mind, I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to love the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to. I long to obey his law. It becomes our delight. We have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Formerly, think with me, we lived according to the flesh, dominated by sinful passions. Sin was at work through the condemning power of the law. Those sinful passions were aroused. They were aggravated by the law, all of that bearing fruit to death. But now, Jesus Christ has set you free from the condemning power of the law. Taking upon himself the penalty that the law demanded of you, having fulfilled the law's demands, and we having died to the penalty and power of sin in union with Jesus Christ, having died, verse 6, to what we were held by, what we were enslaved to, we died with the result that we should serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. And again, a reference to our union with Jesus Christ, 
us having been now married to another. We serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Now serve what? Serve whom? Well, chapter six provides us with the answer. In chapter six, we're referred to as slaves of God. Slaves of Jesus Christ. That's the whom. Slaves of righteousness. Slaves of holiness. Slaves of obedience. Some Christians, many Christians today, think of that word obedience as a dirty word. And anytime someone gets up and calls the people of God to obedience, you might as well be a rank legalist for calling anyone to obey the word of God. We're slaves of obedience. (laughs) Slaves of obedience. Obedience to what? Obedience to the law of God, which has not been set aside under its commanding authority to distinguish between that which is righteous and that which is unrighteous. We're slaves of obedience to the law under the rule of God's law as a guide of life for the believer. Our confession of faith, again, listen. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and of their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly. Notice those words, directs and binds. Discovering also the sinful pollutions of our own natures, hearts, lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to a further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin. Together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience. How do I know that I desperately need his righteousness? to put my faith in him for his righteousness because I am grievously unrighteous. And I know that because of God's law. It is likewise, the confession continues, it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what their sins deserve, what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and unallayed rigor thereof. The promises of it likewise show them God's approbation or God's approval of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. It's in this way that Paul would say at the very end of the chapter, last verse in the chapter, that with his mind, he serves the law of God. He serves, it hasn't been done away with, he serves the law of God with his mind. In closing, there are two ways in which you may serve the law of God, two ways in the newness of the spirit or in the oldness of the letter. Two ways. By this, Paul does not intend to make a distinction between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, the way that we would use those terms today. That's usually, those terms are usually invoked by someone wanting to make excuses for partial obedience. Well, I'm not, you're a stickler for the letter of the law. I'm just trying to live by the spirit of the law. (laughs) All right. Where that concept is actually employed in Scripture, Scripture means the opposite of that excuse. The opposite of that excuse. Where is that, that method or that, that understanding employed in Scripture? Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. The letter of the law. The letter of the law. You shall not commit adultery. What's the spirit of the law? If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Adultery is not just a matter simply of what you do in the flesh. Right? It's a matter of the heart. Out of the heart of man proceed these evil wickedness, right? The scriptures don't speak of that concept in these terms, though. You're not going to find that spirit and letter 
distinction used in that way. So what is Paul referring to then here in verse six with the use of that distinction? The distinction between living according to the flesh and living according to the spirit. That's the distinction. In the newness of the spirit is to live in accord with the spirit, under the power of the spirit, to live in newness of life. To live according to the flesh is to live in the oldness of the letter. Living according to the flesh, verse five, is when you were in the flesh, you did not serve in the power of the spirit. You did not rejoice in or glory in Christ Jesus. If you served at all, you certainly served in the oldness of the letter. In other words, referring to the dead man, old, dead, religious works in bare, begrudging, heartless obedience that does not glorify Christ, does not rejoice in Christ, but is rather more lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, producing your bitter end, which is death. That's living in the oldness of the letter. Contrast that bankrupt condition with the one who now serves in the newness of the spirit, in newness of life. He's received a circumcision made without hands. He's received a heart circumcision. He's been born again. Indwelt by the spirit of God. He has the spirit of God living within him. The spirit of God having authored within his heart a love for righteousness, a hatred for sin. Having been delivered from the condemning power of the law, he now serves with a spirit-wrought heart of gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ, glorying in Jesus Christ, serving by faith in Jesus Christ. He serves in the power and strength and wisdom supplied by the Spirit, freely choosing those things that do not indulge himself, his own sinful passions, but rather choosing freely those things which are pleasing to God. Galatians chapter five, verse 24, those who are Christ's, those who belong to him have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's a statement of fact. We're to live in light of that fact. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? Quite a contrast. The difference is between lost and saved. The difference is between heaven and hell. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse six, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. To serve in the oldness of the letter, to serve in the flesh, all of those fleshly works, which aren't the fruit of faith, which do not glory in Jesus Christ, which aren't done in dependence upon the spirit, Serving in the flesh kills. The spirit gives life. Serve Christ in the newness of the spirit. Embrace these truths by faith and serve Christ in the newness of the spirit. Serve Christ in the power of the spirit. Serve the Lord Jesus Christ in all the strength, in all the blessedness that the Lord Jesus Christ has secured for you who will put your faith and trust in him. Serve in that way. It doesn't mean that we as Christians don't have the flesh to deal with. We certainly do have the flesh to deal with. Paul is going to set up now in Romans chapter seven um, to deal with remaining corruption or indwelling sin in the life of a Christian. He's about to deal with that in Romans chapter seven. That's a reality. However, although indwelling sin remains, indwelling sin does not reign. We have been free, freed. Our lives radically transformed by this reality. And so brothers and sisters, it then behooves us 
to think on these truths. Think on these facts. Trust actively. Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that these things are true of you. Reckon yourself dead indeed to sin. Reckon yourself dead to the condemning power of the law and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We should live in the embrace of those truths until the day that he frees us forever from the presence of sin, a day we look forward to. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for these truths. Thank you for these things which are um, certainly uh, facts of our new status as those in union with Jesus Christ through faith. Having been justified, uh, we now have peace with God uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ and now have access to this grace in which we stand through faith in him uh, to live not in the oldness of the letter, not according to the flesh as we once lived, but according to the spirit and the newness of the spirit in the likeness of his resurrection life and our fruit to holiness, the end of which is everlasting life. Thank you for these glorious truths. Help us, Lord, to meditate on these things, uh, not to live a moment of our lives without embracing the reality of this blessedness that we have in union with Christ in the salvation which we've been delivered in our justification and strengthen us, Lord, by your spirit to fight against sin and to live in accord uh, with your law and live in accord with the purpose um, for which you've said here that we were justified, that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in him, in union with him. Help us, Lord, we pray. We love you. We desire to live lives that are pleasing to you. And we can only do that in the power of your spirit. Lord, strengthen us to that end. Teach us. Help us to inform our minds that it might shape how we think, that it might uh, inform what we believe and who we believe for it, that, we might, um, that it might transform how we live. For your glory, God, in Jesus' name, amen.